what's happening with currencies and commodities. Um, interestingly, the, the gold price um, is only up $6 from last week. And then usually in times of crisis or monetary crisis, like everyone's expecting with Greece, the gold price should be going up dramatically because it's always seen as a safe haven. And, and it's just not happening. So, so you know, the, the investors are aren't fleeing to gold and the silver price which is the other you know, not saying so much as a safe haven but, but a bit of a safe haven and a store of value um, it was actually down by 1.4% so you know the precious metals aren't, aren't reacting um, the way you'd expect to a, a crisis in the paper money of the euro um, the copper price was, a, was up half a percent for the week and the nickel price was down 6.2%, which is a significant drop, actually. Um, almost $1,000 a tonne, the price of nickel fell during the week to 15482 And the other... Um, base metal, the tin price, um, was down 8%. So that was down um, almost $1,500 or $1,600 a tonne to $18,045 a tonne. So those, those uh, industrial commodities kind of reflect um, expectations of um, economic activity. And, and that's a big movement in those. You know, previous weeks we've been talking, you know, half a percent either way, and now we're talking about falls of six and eight percent. Yeah, that certainly made a thump when it hit the ground, mm, eh? Yes, and then the um, the uh, the Australian dollar was down against the US dollar um, by one point two percent for the week, down back down to seventy six cents, and that that kind of confirms our thoughts on the movements in the stock market. There were people were overseas investors were selling their holdings in Australian shares and repatriating the money, which would cause the A dollar to fall as well. Um, we were down against half a percent against the British pound and we were up uh, 1.23% against the euro. So what that means with the euro is the euro is weakening uh, across the world and, and consequently our currency has gone up. And the world equity markets were just a, a sea of red over the last week. Um, the Australian market, as of yesterday, was down uh, 2.9% on the week. Um, it was up slightly this morning, but, but you know, 2.9% of the week, almost 3%. Um, the Dow Jones was down 1.1%. Um, the FTSE, which is the UK index, was down 3.45%. I mean, Europe's going to be more, more affected if anything happens to the euro than um, either Australia or the US. And the Hang Seng, which is more reflective, which is a Hong Kong market, which to a certain extent reflects uh, what's happening in China, was down 4.1% for the week as continue concern about the Chinese property booms flowing to the uh, Chinese mainland equity markets and, of course, to the Hong Kong market. And your favourite thing, Jane, the oil price, the Wex Texas, Texas Munich crude, um, it's, it was down 5%, which, which is, an, again, a large movement. We've been talking about 1s and 2% in the last you know, it was down 5% on the week, down to $74 a barrel. And what's happened to our Bowsers? Well, not much. Um, Newcastle's unleaded petrol price a minute ago was $1.42 a litre, which is down 0.7% on the week. And Sydney's was down 4% um, to $1.36. So we're back to a $0.06 cents a litre difference, which is a reasonably significant difference. And Same with diesel? Diesel, no, no movement in diesel. Um, Newcastle diesel price was the same as last week, $1.36, and the Sydney diesel price was up slightly um, 
$2.30, which is about a six cents a litre difference there too. This is Thursday Finance for our sponsor Pritchard and partner Stephen Pritchard. It's time for our market snapshot and uh, we usually do that with Henry Jennings. And are we going to do it with Henry Jennings today? Yes, we're doing it with Henry Jennings today. I'm just getting used to this new microphone. Jane. Yeah, well, excellent. Good. Use it. Talk. Talk. Hi. Hi, Henry. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Good morning. Good. Morning. Afternoon. How are you? Um, uh, is it afternoon? Uh, yes, it is afternoon. I'm fine. How's Melbourne? Uh, Melbourne is good. Melbourne is, is uh, bright and sunny down here, a bit windy, but uh, not too bad. Market is also bright and sunny today, so that's always good. That's excellent, for the, uh, considering the last week. And um, yes. bright and sunny Medicare uh, private seems to be starting to flex their muscles a bit. Well, they, they do seem to be. Uh, they, they're certainly under some, some pressures, I guess. Um, they seem to be having problems in terms of the, the, the rises that uh, consumers are prepared and are willing to pay uh, for medical insurance is not as much as they're actually paying out in terms of the claims and to hospital price rises. So today they've gone and got tough. They've got tough with a group called the Calvary Hospital, um, and they've told them that basically they won't be using their services in future as they failed on a number of aspects um, in terms of efficiencies uh, and procedures. So, um, so they are getting tough. They are flexing their muscles. Um, I guess it's good to see that the stock has been somewhat disappointing since it listed. Um, after the initial sort of um, euphoria um, weighed, uh, you know, came out of the stock, um, the stock has um, has fallen away. Um, so yeah, it's not not been too too impressive in that respect. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about these Medicare announcement is that they they claim that the they've terminated the relationship because the calorie healthcare wouldn't agree to an, to its quality and affordability yeah. criteria. As as yeah. a, as, a, as a consumer, I think Medicare needs to publish uh, the quality criteria. I mean, everyone knows affordability is just about price, but yeah, yeah. we we need to be looking at the quality more than the price. I would have thought, and if they can't agree to the quality, what what's the issue there? Yeah, it does seem to be a little bit worrying. Um, Calvary obviously are, are disputing this, um, and as you say, it would be nice to see what sort of um, criteria they place around the quality yeah. side of things. Yeah. And then another retailer is looking to expand in Australia. IKEA is planning to more than double its <laughs> presence in Australia. Yeah, they're, they're, they are. It's um, at the moment. I don't know about um, up your way, but there's only a couple of stores. Um, in Sydney, um, and people can get lost in them for days, as everyone knows about, and only sort of reappear at the checkout when they're hungry, having eaten the Swedish meatballs. So um, it's um, they're looking to put smaller stores and even uh, sort of corner stores and doing online as well. So um, I guess that's... Um, I'm not sure Harvey Norman would be too pleased to hear that because they would be uh, in somewhat competition to their furniture stores. But or uh, or fantastic furniture as well, so um, well, I'm probably negative for those two stocks. I would have thought also uh, Bunnings to a certain extent because I know I know there's a number of people up here who who've, who've actually gone to Sydney and bought IKEA kitchens instead of Bunnings kitchens. Yeah. Because IKEA is I think the closest store somewhere in Sydney, um, and, and I would have thought that um, you know a lot of that kitchens that are being bought at Bunnings, you know, these flat pack kitchens, um, yep. they're going to drift across to IKEA if they open up here. So, so it's, certainly, it's certainly possible, yeah. I, I guess at the end of the day, I mean, Bunnings are sort of everywhere, whereas IKEA yep. are only in a few few places. But certainly if they go online and you can buy your kitchen online through IKEA, um, the, the question is uh, whether you want to buy a kitchen from Bunnings or whether you want to buy one from IKEA. And IKEA has got a certain... Um, prestige name to it rather than Bunnings Flat Pack, I would have thought. 
But anyhow. It's, it's a scary thing that we're now saying that IKEA got a prestige name. Well, you know, certain people think it has. Um, <laughs> and Woolworths, Woolworths was looking at selling um, uh, Thomas Ducks. Yeah. yeah, Woolworths have got a, a kind of an upmarket, um, not not quite boutique, but an upmarket um, food and grocery store, uh, Thomas Ducks. I, I know we've got one near us on the northern beaches, um, which is probably twice as expensive and sells lots of organic things. Um, David Jones, which is owned now by the South African retailers, Woolworths, who have a lot of um, a lot of experience in this kind of sector, this kind of gourmet organic food sector, um, have been looking at expanding in Australia, potentially anyway. Um, and Woolworths may be uh, a seller of their Thomas Ducks business. They were talking about between 10 and $20 million, um, which doesn't sound an awful lot given the size of Woolworths. Um, but I guess it is a signal that they're, um, they're getting out of this segment because it has been quite troublesome for them. And it is a kind of a distraction, I guess, when they've got certainly plenty of other problems to, to, uh, to address. Um, but I think they balked when they heard that it was the David Jones uh, South African-owned um, company that was looking at, um, at taking over the Thomas Duck. So they, they weren't too keen on that. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't too... Yeah, they, they weren't too keen on a well-capitalised um, um, competitor entering no. the market, no. Um, no, definitely not. This is Thursday Finance for our sponsor, Pritchard & Partners, our market snapshot. And Stephen Pritchard with Henry Jennings. Stephen. Uh, so Brookfield's pressed uh, on the ASEAN. They've been wanting um, various shareholders, of course, want a higher offer, as they always do, and yeah. claiming that the bid's are undervaluing the uh, infrastructure company in Australia. Do you think... The, yeah. Do you think yeah. that's right, or we're going to have to see a higher? Well, I always say this. I mean, this is standard procedure yep. for uh, for a board um, is to uh, say that they're undervaluing the company. The fact is, the market was was valuing the company at around six dollars fifty, six dollars sixty before the bid, um, and now the uh, the bid or the proposed bid, anyway, um, is still in its early stages. From Brookfield, which is a Canadian infrastructure asset manager, is around a sort of nine dollars kind of level. It does depend on what the Brookfield shares do in Canada because there is a share and cash component. Um, so it's, you know, they always say that it's undervalued. It's potentially that there might be some other players in the wings. Um, you never know with these things. The stock had a, a big run yesterday. It's still, uh, it's still having a goodish day today. They're up to 785. Obviously there is some risk that this event won't happen, uh, that Brookfield may walk away, but at the moment it's, it certainly seems a little bit positive. But I think what it has done is shown that uh, overseas investors are keen on Australian assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're especially keen on um, infrastructure and logistical assets. We've seen recently Toll Holdings, which, uh, uh, as some of your listeners remember, Asiano and Toll were kind of uh, joined at the hip for, for some time. Uh, Toll Holdings recently got taken out by um, Japan Post, um, and now we've seen Ashiano um, also have a bid. And there's a stock here at Marcus today that we're um, quite keen on, uh, which is uh, Cube uh, Logistics, which QUB is the code there. Um, they, they have another strategic infrastructure asset in Sydney, uh, this uh, massive Moorbank um, freight and rail terminal that they've been uh, been constructing. So, you know, the, these assets are unique. We saw this yesterday with Sydney Airports having a good day and also Transurban having a good day as well. So um, there is certainly an attraction with the Aussie dollar is where it is at the moment. Some of these overseas guys do see the value in our um, in our assets, especially as we've seen the market sort of sold down a little bit recently. 
Yeah, yeah, so you just wonder where it's going to stop. And then uh, Briscoe, which is a Briscoe group, which is a New Zealand uh, clothing retailer, is yeah. bidding for Kathmandu. Well, yeah, I mean, again, this is, I mean, Kathmandu has been a perennial underperformer. It's, it's very much geared to the weather, I'm afraid, Kathmandu. Um, and they have, they seem to have everything perennially on sale. Um, and it, it is very much sort of geared towards um, the Christmas and the Easter sort of camping, um, let's go out in the bush kind of market. And if you get strange weather patterns around those two periods, it really does have a big effect on sales. And as a result, the company has, has suffered over the last few years. Um, and the Briscoe guys from New Zealand who uh, run the Rebel uh, franchise in New Zealand uh, very successfully over there um, have made, I, I guess it's an opportunistic bid. Once again, the board have said, uh, you know, do nothing, we're having a look, um, and we'll wait and see. The stock was, you know, high flyer at one stage above, uh, oh, I think it was about um, $3.40 or something ridiculous, uh, going back some time, and they could do no wrong. Um, they got to the $3.60, um, and sort of then plunged to a dollar twenty, and they're back up to a dollar fifty. The current bid uh, from Briscoe's around the sort of dollar eighty, dollar ninety level again, depending on what the shares are doing over in New Zealand. But mm-hmm. um, interesting. And then there's more. There's more problems that our um, class action lawyers Slater and Gordon with, uh, with some kind of allegation about loans this morning. Yeah, I mean this is a tricky one. Slater and Gordon uh, uh, bought what they called at the time a company making uh, acquisition in the UK and they bought the professional indemnity business uh, of uh, of, um, a company called Quindell in the UK which is an AIM uh, which is a listed company in the UK, um, and there seems to be some certainly some issues with uh, Quindells in the UK um, with the overstating or, or sort of misstating of, uh, of profits and revenue. I think these litigators tend to um, have to sort of apportion a chance of winning a case. Um, it's it's a, it's not an exact science, I guess. If you're suing someone for two billion dollars and you think you might settle for a hundred million and you've got a twenty percent chance of getting that hundred million, then you, you know you, if you say that the revenue is going to be twenty, um, it could be twenty, it could be a hundred, it could be zero. Um, so it is not an exact science. I mean, they obviously use their experience to gauge what that future revenue is going to be, but it isn't exact. Um, there's been a lot of people shorting the stock. And as a result, that, 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 they're a bit naughty, some of these guys shorting the stock, because they do love getting stories in the press and getting awkward questions asked at presentations about uh, the company's accounts. And they've had to own up to some, mm. some minor sort of um, missed, well, some minor indiscretions, I guess, in their company accounts as well. So there's a feeling that where there's one cockroach, there's more than there's a few. Yes, yes. And speaking of uh, uh, problems, we, we're just got time to talk about your favourite uh, topic, the Greek financial troubles. Apparently they've coined this new word um, Grexit. Oh, it, there's, there's so many new words. Is that how you pronounce it? it? Uh, there's, there's the Grexit, there's the referendum. Um, there's, there's, you basically you, you, you put the GR in front of any kind of uh, event um, to uh, describe it, but, but Greece stands on the uh, on the precipice. I guess they've got a vote on Sunday with a, with a, a referendum for people whether they vote yes or no. Um, the, 
the questions are kind of a bit tricky because um, they're not really sure completely what they're voting on. The, the current government has said we want people to vote no, which means that they will um, say no to all the creditors' proposals. But a yes vote is a yes to what? Because we're not really sure what is because any creditors' proposals have been withdrawn. So I'm not really sure what you're voting yes for. Um, the, the, the media and the people seem to be framing it as a yes, we stay in Europe and no, we leave. Um, whatever the outcome, it's going to be painful and nasty for uh, the Greek population. Um, and there's going to be some uh, disruptions, but financial markets seem to be taking it very much in their stride. Okay. Well, at the moment, anyway. At the moment. Um, yeah. We'll see. Space, we'll, see. We'll, we'll, we'll be talking about this next week. I'm, I'm sure, sure we will. Henry, it's your favourite topic. In five years' time. To a new RFM at 17.21, taking your questions on Thursday Finance, and John's rung in from Coal Point. John, you've got a question for Stephen. Hi, John. G'day, Stephen. Um, I don't know whether it's a simple one or not, but um, I'm just wondering about selling some Commonwealth Bank shares because they they went up uh, quite high and uh, they've dropped back to about eighty-five or six dollars. And um, uh, it sounds like the Commonwealth Bank might have to pay out some money for people who lost uh, in the investment side of things. And I was wondering whether you think that the value of those shares might go down a bit further. Oh, I, 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 I wouldn't have thought that the compensation that they're going to have to pay out on what's presently known is going to have a major effect on the share price. I, I think what will have a larger effect is that the, um, the RBA and APRA is pressing the Australian banks to raise additional equity capital. And what that, that will do is re- reduce the return on equity. So I think you'll find over a period of time that the, the, not just the CBA, the major banks are going to have to raise additional equity. That'll, that'll depress the returns on equity and consequently the share prices will fall. I mean, the CBA, if you compare other banks around the world, um, the CBA looks very expensive, particularly against, um, uh, Wells Fargo, which is a, has got a similar type of investor um, profile in the U in the US, and the CBA is about double the price of Wells Fargo. Oh, right. So, so we, we I mean, our view is that, that that all the banks, not just CBA, are fully priced, and you know if they represent a large proportion of your portfolio, um, particularly um, CBA people who bought that at five dollars, um, you should think about selling some of those. Um, but you need to look at your tax position as well, because you know a lot of people have. If they bought in the original float, and there's still quite a lot of people holding that, um, they only paid $5.40, so um, you might end up with a large tax bill. So just factor that in uh, when when you're figuring out to sell them. All right. Well, thanks, Stephen. Okay. Thursday Finance for our sponsor, Pritchard & Partners. It's 11 to 1. So, Stephen, uh, self-managed super funds do need to have an investment strategy. True or false? That's true. I I thought that um, one of the things we'd look at in the new financial year, it's an ideal time to review your self-managed superannuation funds investment strategy. Now, all, all superannuation funds are supposed to, all self-managed superannuation funds are supposed to have a, an investment strategy um, that Section 52 of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act requires. Um, the Act doesn't actually specify that the investment strategy has to be in writing, but um, I would suggest that 
really, the audit needs to check it. So I don't know how he's going to check it if it's not in writing. Um, and the investment strategy has to, has to, um, cover a number of things off, including, you know, the risk involved in holding, making and realizing an investment and its likely return. Um, we'll just go through this and then come back to a few points. The composition of the fund's investments as a whole, um, the liquidity of the fund's investments having regard to expected future cash flows and the ability of the fund to discharge its existing and prospective liabilities and whether the fund should hold a contract of insurance that provides for insurance cover for one or more members. Now, the insurance cover was, was only introduced in the investment strategy requirements about 18 months ago. So a lot of the... Um, investment strategies, if yours is older than um, 18 months to two years, it probably doesn't cover in insurance, so therefore it probably doesn't comply with the Act and the regulations. So that's one reason you need to look at. Now, all the trustees have to do is, is have a look at the members of the fund and determine whether it's appropriate for the members to have an insurance coverage in the fund. Now, there are a number of reasons why it might not be. I mean, the age of the members might be such that the, the cost of the premiums are prohibitive. Um, the members might have sufficient assets outside of the fund. And, and they, the trustees might then determine that those particular members um, don't require insurance. On the other side of the coin, there might be some young members in the fund who the trustees consider that, that they do require insurance, and then the trustees, after they've made that decision, have to enter into an, a, a contract of insurance for those particular members. So that's something new that's been introduced, that that that... If you're invest, like I said, if your investment strategy is more than, you know, probably two years old, it doesn't cover off on that and it needs to be updated. Um, you know, it is a breach of the rule, uh, the regulations and may lead to a contravention report, um, by the order because the, the more and more of these, um, self-managed superannuation fund regulations are being tightened up and, and the order's being now required to make more and more contravention reports. Um, now, one of the other interesting things, particularly with what's happening in self-managed superannuation funds at the moment, is the standard that deals with um, the liquidity of the fund's investments having regard to expected cash flow requirements and the ability of the fund to discharge existing and prospective liabilities. Now, one of the things you're seeing is that there's a number of promoters going around promoting that you buy um, an investment property in your self-managed superannuation fund and then even even to the extent of borrowing in the fund to acquire that property. Now, if you're doing that, you need to carefully consider the cash flow requirements of the fund and its its ability to discharge future liabilities. And now, one of the problems with buying an investment pro- property in the fund, particularly particularly if it's a major asset of the fund, or in some cases I have seen the sole asset of the fund, um, if there's some reason the fund has to pay out an asset, it can uh, uh, pay out a benefit. It can become very difficult. I, I have seen a fund where the sole asset in the fund was a, a commercial property. Um, the partner of the, 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 the husband passed away. Um, the fund had to pay out the benefits and um, the property couldn't be sold in sufficient time. And basically we had this, well, we, we didn't have the problem, but, but the trustees of the fund had this problem that they couldn't actually pay out the benefits and so that would be um, the trustees haven't properly formulated um, the investment strategy to take into account the liquidity requirements of the um, expected cash flows and the other problem where this will occur is is um, a number of people have um, 
I've seen that they're purely in the fund they've got term deposits and when or even one term deposit and when they renew the term deposit they just renew it on the basis of you know what's the highest interest rate now some of these funds have pension commitments and um, recently we had the case that we, we had to come up with a workaround um, unfortunately the people in the fund were less than 65 um, uh, that they'd put all the money into a term deposit and they had no money to pay the pension and you know, if if they hadn't paid the pension out, um, the fund would would have um, not no longer been a pension fund. Would have converted back to an accumulation fund, and once again would have become taxable. So, so it's all to do with liquidity, perhaps. Liquidity. The fund needs to have sufficient assets to to pay their obligations, and and they need to be liquid assets. So the fund's investment strategy needs to deal with that. So it's all right to have some not very liquid assets, or yeah, well, or that, that's that's fine, and it's fine having not you know funds. A superannuation fund is an ideal vehicle to hold illiquid assets that you wish to hold for the long term, but you still need to ensure that there's sufficient liquidity in the fund. Um, you know, if we're we're assisting to draft these investment strategies, what we always say is you need to have three years um, pension payments. Um, in term deposits, and the easiest way is to put a one-year term deposit, two-year term deposit, and three-year term deposit, and then you've, you've covered your, your, your future expected cash flows. Yes, so that the cash is always there. The cash is there. You, you need, need, to, need it to pay your pension. You don't have to worry about market risks or rent not coming in or dividends not coming in. You can meet your pension requirements. And, and by locking in three years, you've got a reasonable time for you to make any adjustments, and you just do that on a rolling basis. Mm, so things that are very illiquid can be houses, oh, can be a problem. properties. A problem. Property, property can be very illiquid. And term deposits, can you get out of them if you really need to? Uh, you can get out of them if you really need to. Um, there's new APRA regulations. Um, you've now got to give um, 31 days notice before the on the new term deposits that are rolling over now. So you know, if you discover on the 25th of June that you've got no money to pay the pension that has to be paid by the 30th, um, and you've got to give your 31 days notice to the financial institution to break your term deposit, um, bad luck. Yes, okay. Um, and um, there's also usually a recalculation of the interest rates, as you'd expect, for early termination of the term deposit. So just be careful with your you, investment you, you strategy. Need, you need to be careful, particularly taking account the liquidity and the composition of the assets of the fund. And that's Thursday Finance for today. Thank you, Stephen Pritchard. Thanks, Jane. We'll be back next uh, Thursday after the midday news on 2NURFM. And you can catch this program on podcast through our website, 2NURFM.com.